If you have your Bibles, open them up to James chapter 5, verse 7. The power of patience. It's kind of ironic. First of all, you should never pray for patience. I don't know if you've ever made that mistake, but don't do that. Because how do you learn patience? By being in a situation you don't want to be in. So be careful about praying for patience. But it is ironic because yesterday I was struggling so much with impatience. And we were just kind of laughing about, you know, my personal history and struggles. So, you know, I'll get a little transparent here and share with you some of the things in our family. But whenever people are getting in the car, they always say, Roger, don't leave yet. We're not we're not in the car. Because I used to, when when our kids were small, it's so hard for me to wait. It is, I hate waiting. And so I would get in the car, and it's like, and I'm just waiting and waiting and waiting for people to get there. And I used to say, you know, I'm driving. I've got more to do than anyone else. I get in the car. I've got to put the address in the GPS, put it up there. And then I've got to turn the car on and put my seatbelt on. All you have to do is sit down and buckle up. That's it. And, and even, you know, getting out of the car, and I just felt like, man, I wait getting into the car, and I wait getting out of the car, and then I wait when we get to the store, and then I wait on the way out of the store, and it just drives me nuts. You know, I realize I don't mind if I have to wait for an hour because I can do something during that hour. I can read something. I can listen to something, but it's those minute waiting things that just drive me nuts. And uh, this weekend, this week, we saw Michelle's parents, and we were, we were in the car to go somewhere, and her mom or dad said, hey, I'm not in the car yet. And I just realized I've traumatized everybody I drive with. So patience this morning as we talk about patience. You know, being in a rush and doing things quickly is not as important as doing the right things. And, um, but this morning, patience is actually not even about time management. When we talk about patience this morning, it really is about control and trust. Who's in control and who do you trust? It's patience is being long-suffering. It's putting up with circumstances in life that you would not have chosen. It's putting up with people that maybe are behaving in a way that you would not want them to behave. And really, it's taking a step back and saying, who's in charge of life? Who is in control? And is it God or is it me? And if you think about our context here, um, really, this morning's message is about faith. And it's about faith in God. Now, for a lot of people, they view religion and church, and I've said this before, as a place to come and kind of clean up your life and learn to be a better person. And it's like there's a lot of places that you can go to learn things to be better. And certainly God designed life. He made life. He made you and me so he knows how to live better than we do. So if you want to figure out how to make life work better, who should you ask? I mean, the one who made it. But, but ultimately, church is not about being a better person. Church is about knowing the God that, is con- that, is, that has created the world, that controls the world, that loved us, that has created a situation where no matter what goes wrong, you're okay. And it's because God's in control. God sent Jesus to die for the sins of mankind, 
And when we believe in him and when we trust God, we're forgiven, we're saved, we go to heaven. Church is about living out a right relationship with God. And when it comes to patience, um, we can work on patience. There's all kinds of quotes about how patience and wisdom will get you anything. But ultimately, living your life with patience is about having a genuine relationship with the creator who loves you, who cares about you, and who is trustworthy. And so um, I think about um, God. And we, in the last couple of weeks, have talked about God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty means he's the king. It means he has the right to do whatever he wants to do. But it also means he is completely powerful and he is in control. So not only does he have the right to do whatever he wants, he has the ability to do whatever he wants. And this morning, we'll think about a couple other elements of God's character. And one of those is that he's wise. God knows what's best. Have you ever thought about your circumstances, your life, your family, maybe things that impact you that are beyond your control? And have you ever thought to yourself, this isn't how this should happen? And yet as believers, we take a step back and we say God is wise. So he knows what's best and he loves us. And no matter what happens in our life, it is for our best interests. But it doesn't always feel that way. And so um, that's... That's the foundation of where we're headed today, and, and we're going to talk about how that works out. So remember James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17? It's about God's will, if the Lord wills. It's business people trying to get things done, thinking that they're doing it in their own power. And James just says, actually, anything you know how to do, it's because God gave you a brain, and God gave you talents, and God gave you abilities. And you're not even with all that. You're not in control of circumstances. And so you should make your plans, but you should realize you are not in control, God is. And then last week's passage, man, that was shocking, right? I mean, it's a message to rich people who got rich by social injustice, by robbing people, by stepping on other people. And James just says, uh, weep and wail, your miseries are coming upon you. And we talked about when was the last time you drove through a really rich neighborhood and thought, I feel sorry for these people. Well, the passage this morning is actually talking to the people who suffered. And sometimes we struggle. We don't struggle with injustice as much as we maybe should because we're not the ones experiencing the injustice. Uh, when you're the one going through terrible things, like we're not, I mean, if you, if, you, if you really knew what happened, for example, in the Holocaust, if you knew what actually happened to people and if you were there and if you watched it, you would be saying, where is God in this? And, and a lot of times we don't struggle with evil in the world because we're not aware of how bad some things are. And James talks to people who have been abused, who have gone through terrible things in their life. And this passage is his message to them. Hey, shall we read it? Um, James chapter 5, verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So here's the first thing that we're going to see in this passage, is that patience provides peace 
in suffering. Patience provides peace in suffering. I wasn't sure if I wanted to share this story, but I'm going to tell you. Uh, somebody that um, Michelle and I know of this week went through something incredibly traumatic. This guy's driving a car. And three people come and surround the car and start saying, you stole the car. And they're trying to open the door. And they're like, this guy's afraid for his life. And then those three people who did that called the police. And when the cops showed up, they look at the situation. It's like, no, you're good. You didn't steal the car. You can go. And what happens to the people who did this? Who called the cops? Nothing. And the cop says, uh, would you be good with an apology? No. Like, if you think about that situation going through something like that, this was a racial situation that happened. Um, I remember watching on the news a racial situation in the other direction. Um, I remember watching during the L.A. riots, Reginald Denny out there um, driving through the streets, some, somebody taking a brick and throwing it into his head. And where were the cops? They were nowhere. I, I seriously thought about getting in my car and driving there, but I realized I couldn't get there before the situation was over. Like when you see things like that, it is so upsetting, so traumatizing. And when you're the one who lives through that or somebody that you know and care about lives through that, man, we can struggle. And James, it's amazing. He says, be patient. So patient, that's suffering without annoyance or without anxiety, without being worried, without being stressed out. It's forbearing, and forbearing is bearing with somebody, maybe putting up with people that are upsetting to be around. You remember James starts his book this way, James chapter 1, verse 5, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So James starts about trials generally, and now he talks about a specific trial. You know, the verse right previous to this talks about how righteous people are being killed by these rich people. So it's like how, ser how more serious can you get? And James says, be patient. Be patient. And why are we patient? We're patient because we know Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, everything is going to be made right. That's why we're patient. It really is something that we rely on what we know of God's character. And then James uses this illustration about the farmer. And he says, see how the farmer waits for precious fruit of the earth being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. This really is an issue of control because a farmer is not in control of the weather. A farmer is not in control of those things. And so he's relying on rain. Now, we live in a culture where we have irrigation. But, you know, there were people who, like, they depended completely on rain. If they didn't get rain, they would starve. And so for a farmer, he's working and he's, he's waiting and he's trusting that God's going to provide what he needs. And then he's working and he's planting. And even after doing all the work, he's not sure if it's going to rain and if the crops are going to grow. And even if everything's happening the way it's supposed to, it's like you stick a seed in the ground, you keep looking out there, all you see is dirt. 
Now, I've never been a farmer, but I do remember planting things. And then every once in a while, you see this little thing crop up, this little plant. And that doesn't actually mean it's going to go all the way to harvest. But a, a farmer is, is waiting and waiting, and then all of a sudden, there's the harvest. And so that's basically what he's saying here. You be patient. Look at, look at how important this is. It says in verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That is actually what makes, gives us confidence and allows us to endure any difficulty, any suffering in life is knowing that Jesus is coming back. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 says this, and this is an important thing for us to consider. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, he will also reap. Think about how obvious that is in life. In fact, there's a whole type of religious belief based on this verse that's actually not true. It's called karma, right? I mean, every time you're watching TV, oh, karma. And everybody always talks about karma. Do you know what that is? Karma is just looking at life and saying people reap what they sow. But nobody wants to give God credit for that. So they just say it's karma. So this unbelieving world sees that God is, his hand is in the world and his hand is in life. But that doesn't always happen in our timetable and in the way we want it to, right? Sometimes things happen. Sometimes we go through things and we say, where is the justice? But the one verse 8 says, for the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. You know, it's interesting. It says to be patient until. See, there is a time limit on life. It is not indefinite. You know, when you're going through things, I know like I, I used to work out with a good friend of mine and we would do planks. And obviously I haven't been doing as much planks as I should. But, but one of the things that was always helpful for me is if, if I could see his watch and I knew how much longer I had to suffer. It's like we were going to plank for a minute and a half. And it's like if, if I couldn't see the watch, it's like I'm in pain. When's this going to end? Sometimes I'd give up. But if I could see, all right, only 20 more seconds. And then I would be able to just keep going if I could see that there was a limit. And we can't see exactly what the limit is in our life. But we do know this. There is a limit. The pain and suffering and injustice will not go on forever. It's not unlimited we are patient until the coming of the Lord. And, and we're patient about that because we know God's character. We know that when he comes, everything will be fixed. 2 Thessalonians 5, chapter 1, verse 5 says this. Paul's encouraging the Thessalonians, and he just says that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which also you are suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who have afflicted you. You know, God is going to bring justice, and sometimes we just think, oh, man, that's not fair. And sometimes we feel like that because we're not the ones who are suffering. And it is amazing to see evil, wicked people who God's grace gets poured out in their life. Um, I know people who have, been in, who, who have been the victim of crimes, who have been forgiving and gone and shared the gospel with the person who committed the crime against them. Where you hear stories about people who have committed these terrible crimes and their victims will go to their parole hearings and say, hey, let this person out. And, and in many cases, people in jail who have committed crimes like that, um, those people come to know the Lord and God saves them 
while they're in jail. And God's grace is poured out on people who don't deserve it, just like us, right? And we're thankful for that. And then there are other people who just hardened their heart against God, and eventually those people will face justice. And there's comfort in that too. And so we need to be patient as we're facing circumstances. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it informs how all these things work out, and it reminds us that life is not always as it seems. How many of you have read the story of Esther? Now, if you think about Esther, the the story of Esther, I don't know if you know this, but did you know that God's name is never mentioned in the book? So the entire book, God's name is never mentioned. There's all these things that happen. But as you look at it, you see God's providence guiding and working through everything that happens. You know, Esther gets chosen to be the queen. Um, uh, Haman hates Mordecai because he won't bow down to him. And he's just like, I hate this guy. I want to kill this guy. And it just so happens that the king needs a bedtime story. And he happens to read a story about how, how Mordecai saved his life. And he's thinking to himself, man, I've never rewarded him for that. So he gets Haman, who hates Mordecai, and he says, hey, if the king really wants to honor somebody, what should he do? And Haman's so prideful, he's like, oh my goodness, the king's talking about me. And he's like, what do I want? And so he lists off all these things he wants, and then the king says, good, Haman, go do that for Mordecai. So now this guy he hates, he's doing all this stuff for. And then, and all this stuff is going on, so he's just like, okay, I got to kill Haman, I got to kill Mordecai, so he decides he's going to wipe out an entire nation just so he can have an excuse to kill Mordecai. And so then as he's doing that, and everything is going well, and the king says yes, I mean, it's like, okay, let's just talk about this from Esther and Mordecai's perspective. Nothing is going their way. Like, it looks bad. And Haman seems like he's winning. And then it's like we get the story, you know, through the, through the story of Esther. It's like God lets us in on what's really going on because you know what Esther's thinking? She's going to the king. She's going to tell on Haman. Haman's trying to kill her, and it just so happens that the king likes her. And so you see this, the the perspective, because Haman still doesn't realize his undoing. She says, hey, Haman, you're invited to our dinner. And so he comes to the dinner. He's going to his family. He's comforting himself. Finally, I'm going to get to kill Mordecai. This is wonderful. Build some gallows 15 feet tall. We're going to hang Mordecai on those. And then he goes to the the queen's dinner where she's going to tell on him and he's going to be killed. But he doesn't know. He's excited. He's bragging that he gets to go. And then he goes back the next night, and, man, it comes out what's happening. And who gets hung on those gallows that they built? Haman. See, that's how life works. From our perspective, we don't always see justice working out. We don't always see evil being punished. But Jesus is coming back and everything will be right, either in this life or in the next, but everything will be right. And, you know, we've been put in such a wonderful position because God just says to us, I am in charge, trust me, be faithful, do what's right. What is is Hebrews chapter uh, 12, verse 17 through 21, what does it say? Never take your own revenge, 
leave room for the wrath of God, for it is mine to repay, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So God says, you're here to love people, to be kind to people, to, be, to do good to your enemies, and you just leave room for me, I will, I will bring justice in the world. We're in such a great position. We just do what's right. We just bring God glory. We trust him to right all the wrongs. What a great place God's put us, and that takes patience. So that kind of has in view these things that happen at work and in the world and all kinds of things from unbelievers that come into our life. But it's interesting because then he transitions to relationships within the body of Christ. So look at this next session, verse, verse 9. Look at this. Patience provides relational peace. Look at verse James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Grumbling. Do you know what grumbling is? So this word for grumbling, like there's a couple different words for grumbling in the Bible, but, but this one's just groaning. It's groaning. It's when you sigh, when you, gra- when you groan, when you complain strongly. Have you ever had an involuntary verbal expression? Like you didn't intend to make noise, you didn't intend to say something, but maybe somebody walks in, you're just like, oh, you know, I can't take that. And it's just like, it just comes out and it wasn't even on purpose. That's grumbling. So I got a question. Are are there any believers that you know that make you grumble? (laughs) Brothers or sisters in Christ, they just bug you. Man, they do things that are irritating. It is hard. You see them in the parking lot on the way in, and you're like, oh, man. (laughs) Sometimes it's just people that irritate you, but have you ever had a brother or sister in Christ that's hurt you, that's said something about you, that's done something to you? You know, I've talked to business people who have said, I will never do business with another Christian. And part of what happens is, um, because it's a Christian, because you're just assuming that everything's going to be okay, maybe you don't get all the legal documents written up correctly. Maybe you don't do all the things that you would do with a stranger because you're trusting somebody. And then when you trust them, they don't follow through and you end up being hurt. I know people who have lost their businesses, who have lost their homes, who have not just lost a little bit of money. They have suffered significantly in those ways. So sometimes... It's not just people who irritate you. It's people who have hurt you, who have wronged you. And what James says here is, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. See, Jesus is coming back, and he's going to make everything right. And you remember that thing Jesus said about doing good to your enemies and loving those who are persecuting you and leaving room for God's wrath? Well, that's an instruction God's given us, and it's our job to actually obey that. And so he's just reminding you, hey, I'm coming back. What's your attitude towards your brothers and sisters in Christ? Don't grumble against them. You know, James 4.11 says, Don't speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. There's one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? 
Here's something Jesus says. Don't judge so that you won't be judged. Philippians 4, 5, I love this. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. See, a lot of times we feel justified in having a bad attitude toward brothers and sisters in Christ because they're not all that they should be. But God calls us to love, to encourage. Have you thought about church and why you go to church? Do you know that one of your main reasons for being here, we're here to learn, we're here to be inspired and encouraged, but one of your main reasons to be here is to encourage people. Look at Ephesians chapter, uh, or Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see how the return of Christ like informs all these things about our attitude? We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to encourage people. We're supposed to build people up. Now think about the church that's committed to that. Isn't that the church you want to be a part of? And, and sometimes we notice what everybody else does wrong, but we are all doing plenty of stuff wrong too, right? And, and sometimes it's, it's more obvious in somebody else's life than in your own life. But we want to be in a place where we're loved, where we're encouraged, where people are building us up, people are being patient with us. And that's what God wants us to be. Now, patience, patience has worked itself out in history. It has been vindicated in history. Look at James chapter 5, verse 10. It says, as an example of the suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. One of the things that you see here is this patient attitude. It can be hard when you're just going through stuff and you don't see the end of it or when justice doesn't happen in front of you. But when you just realize, hey, God's always done this. It's always going to work out. Let's look at all these examples in history and all these examples in Scripture. Now, we can all think of times and ways that we've seen this happen in our life and in the lives of others. And we see it working out. But when you can look at a biblical account that tells the whole story and explains how it all worked out, that's some of the greatest value of the Old Testament is, is seeing how God has worked and knowing that God doesn't change. And so it's amazing as you think about this, the prophets and Job. Have you thought about the prophets, the suffering and patience of the prophets? Hebrews 11 is like a whole list. You should watch, you should watch that. You should read that. You should read Hebrews 11 and just see the way that God has worked faithfully in time. You know, at the beginning of Hebrews 11, like kind of in the middle when he starts going through all these biblical examples, they're all great stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember those three? And they got thrown into the furnace, and the king says, no God can save you from me. By the way, that's what you want to hear in the mouth of your enemies. It's kind of like the king who went to Hezekiah, I've destroyed everybody, and now I'm going to destroy you, and your God can't save me. That is the best thing in the world when one of your enemies says, God has no power. That's perfect, because now you know everything's going to go okay, because they're prideful, and God always vindicates himself. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, hey, even if God doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow to your idol. They get thrown in. There's another person in there. The king calls them out. God gets all kinds of glory. They're saved. They're not burned up. Hey, we like those stories, don't we? 
As you read on to the rest of Hebrews chapter 11, you get down a little bit further, and it talks about people who were imprisoned, people who were killed, and prophets that got sawn in half. You know, Isaiah, the, the prophet who wrote Isaiah, there's like tradition is that somebody stuck him in a log, sawed the log in half, sawed him in half. And Hebrews chapter 11 talks about a prophet that got sawn in two. See, those people still are an example of faith and trust in the Lord because things don't always work out right in this life. Sometimes they don't. And so we have this example of these prophets. How about Jeremiah? You know, I've never read, like, I, I've read the story of Daniel and thought, man, it'd be kind of cool to be Daniel. I've never thought I'd like to be Jeremiah, ever. Like, you read this guy's life story, and God just says, um, hey, Jeremiah, you need to go speak to my people. You're going to bring a bad message. Nobody's going to like it. You're going to lose all your friends. They're not going to listen to you, and they're going to try to kill you. And you're going to be intimidated, terrified, and afraid. But you just remember this. Be more afraid of me than you are of them. You do exactly what I tell you to do. And at one point, Jeremiah just says, everybody's turned against me. Even my friends are waiting for something to go wrong in my life so that they can jump on me. I mean, Jeremiah was so discouraged, so frustrated. There's no record in the book of Jeremiah that anybody ever listened to him, ever. How'd you like to have a ministry where you preach and you minister and you're faithful and you're doing everything God tells you to do and no one listens, no one responds, nobody ever comes forward, everybody just rejects you and hates you? That's a tough ministry. And yet Jeremiah was doing exactly what God wanted. That's what God called him to. Um, that's pretty tough. Um, but you know what? We look back, and he was faithful, and we see how God worked. And here's one of the really cool things. There's no record of anybody actually ever getting saved in Jeremiah's ministry. But who grew up? Do you know this? Who grew up in Jeremiah's ministry? Do you guys know? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They grew up in Israel um, Jeremiah was delivering this message that you're going to be judged, you're going to be punished, and then you know how they take those guys to Babylon? That was the punishment that Jeremiah was talking about. And you look at these guys and you think, in a wicked nation, how could somebody grow up and be so faithful? They were teenagers. And you realize, okay, there was fruit to Jeremiah's ministry. And then Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah and goes, hey, the time's up. Daniel, Jeremiah said we'd be here for 70 years. We're going home. And so you realize that there was fruit to his ministry, even though it didn't seem like it. And then think about the people who were impatient, people who said, no, I'm taking matters into my own hands. Uh, I know what God says, but I'm not going to do what God says. Can you think of any of those people? How about Abraham? Um, hey, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. Well, Sarah's getting old, and it's taken a long time. Hagar. Um, how'd that turn out? That wasn't such a good plan. Uh, how about Moses? Man, these grumbling, complaining Israelites. Moses is this faithful, godly man. The Bible says the most humble man ever. Moses wrote that. Man, he was humble. <laughs> that he could write that. And Moses gets impatient, and instead of speaking to a rock, he strikes it, and he doesn't give God glory, doesn't treat God with reverence, and God says, all right, Moses, you're not going into the promised land. 
how that lack of patience work out. Um, how about King Saul? Remember King Saul? He's getting ready to fight this battle, and he's got his, all of his army, and, and he sees all the Philistines, and he's waiting for the prophet to come make the sacrifice. And Saul's just like, oh, my goodness, the people start going away. He's like, man, I need people. Hey, we got to get this done. So he makes the sacrifice. And right after he makes the sacrifice, he was impatient, didn't trust God, wanted to be in control of the circumstances. No, people are leaving. God following your plan, more people are going to leave. Okay, I'll do my plan to keep people here. And Samuel walks up to him right after he does it, and he says, God's rejected you for being king. If, if you would have obeyed me, you never would have lacked a descendant on the throne. But as it is, you're out and somebody new's coming in. How'd that impatience work out for him? See, isn't it great to see that patience, trust, realizing that God's in control, it always works out? And when we say, no, I'm going to solve this my way, that never works out. Kind of nice to be able to see that in Scripture. It inspires us. It encourages us. It helps us through. How about Job? Any of you guys ever see the story of Job, read the story of Job and think, oh, man, that is so cool. Look at God's mercy and grace in that. Who's thought that? You're rich, you're faithful, you've done nothing wrong. And in one second, people come tell you, um, hey, all your kids just died. You just lost all your stuff. Like everybody in Job's family dies except his wife, and she says, Job, just kill yourself. <laughs> like the only person left in his life tells him to kill himself. And then he has these wonderful friends that spend all this time saying, this is your fault. You caused this. You're an evil person. And the entire time we know that's not why. And yet he goes through that. And it's like if you've ever read the book of Job, do you ever get tired of it? Like I, I love chapter 1 and 2, and I love 38 through 40, but I hate, every, I hate everything in the middle. It's just like all this complaining, and it just goes on and on. But that was Job's life. And here's the thing that we see. Hey, Job's faithfulness, wasn't it good? It was real. It was genuine. But, man, he was faithful. And we look back and say, okay, that's who I want to be. You know, Job chapter 13, verse 15 says, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. That word for hope is patience. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to wait. But look at this. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Job's whole thing was, God, why are you doing this to me? I didn't do anything to deserve it. And, but Job is saying, but God, I trust you. But I'm going to argue because I don't understand. I'm having a hard time with this. He was honest. He took his struggles to the Lord, but he said, God, I trust you. And then, uh, I love this. Now, this is an amazing verse, verse 25. Job was thinking about the return of Christ. Now, this is weird when you look at this verse because Job was the first book written. So you don't have all of the Old Testament and all the discussions about the future. There's no book of Revelation. There's no really developed theology. But look what Job says. This is an amazing thing. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Job is saying, I have a Redeemer. By the way, that is Jesus. That's the coming Messiah that is his Redeemer. And Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at last he will stand on the earth. 
This is Jesus coming back and putting his feet on the earth. I know my Redeemer lives. I know he's going to stand on the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. Job knows that he's going to be resurrected that he's going to have a physical body. And he says, I know that on that day, I'm going to see Jesus. I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes will behold and not another. He's saying, I'm going to see Jesus with my own eyes. Now, he doesn't know his name's Jesus, so I filled in some other details. But he knows that there's a coming Messiah See, in Genesis, when God told Adam, hey, I'm going to send a seed who's going to bruise Satan's head, like people knew things, God taught things, and then they were progressively revealed in Scripture. But Job, through all he's going through, is thinking about the coming of Jesus and how he's going to make that all right. And my heart faints within me. Again, he's honest. And how does that whole thing end up? This is what I love about Job. At the very end, Job just says, God, I see you and I know you. That's been such an incredible gift in my life, this struggle I went through. Before I'd heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. At the end of it, Job didn't say, hey, this is unfair. This is terrible. God, why'd you put me through this? At the end, he just says, God, you're awesome. And now I really see you because through my suffering, man, you were real to me. And now this makes sense. I know you love me and you care about me, even though he still didn't know the details. But think about God's mercy and compassion. There's two elements of God's mercy and compassion. One is that God vindicates Job in front of his accusers. You know those people that he had been sitting there for, those friends of his that were just criticizing him and tearing him apart all that time? God says to them, "Um, you guys are in trouble. Because you didn't say what was right like Job did. What Job said was right. What you said was wrong. Do you know God said that to them? And then God says to them, so go get a bunch of bulls and goats and take them to Job and ask him to pray for you and then I'll forgive you if he asks asks me to forgive you. So these people that are getting on Job have to have Job pray for them. And then I love this in Job 42.10. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And then this is what I love. And I think a lot of times we miss this. But God restores his fortunes. And then it says this. And came to him all of his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before. And they ate bread with him in his house. And they showed sympathy. And they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. So now Job gets his fortunes restored and he gets people that will love him and care for him and be sympathetic toward him. God gives him that. Now I just want you to know in the body of Christ, having people that love each other, that are sympathetic toward each other, that encourage each other through the challenges of life, is that not what God wants in the body of Christ? And that happens when we're patient with our circumstances and when we are patient with people. You know, patience results in personal faithfulness too. And this is kind of an interesting thing. You wonder, why is this verse here? Let me read it and we'll wrap this up quickly. 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, that you may not fall under condemnation. So basically what he says here is keep your word. Don't make promises. Be honest. Do the things you'll say you're going to do. Now, have you ever thought about when you're tempted to lie? People are tempted to lie. People are tempted not to follow through on their commitments when they decide they want to take matters into their own hands. I need to be in control. If I tell you the truth, I'm going to get into trouble. If I tell you the truth, you're not going to do what I want you to do. And so just this, qual- this quality of honesty and integrity is just when you say, hey, I trust God, he's in control, and I'm going to do what's right. I'm not going to try to grab a hold of life and make things happen my way. And so honesty and integrity is just an expression of being, trust, uh, of being trusting in God, trusting him. So patience, it's powerful. When you give up, when you get discouraged, when you start to say, I need to take control of life, that's when things go wrong. When you say, I know that God loves me, I know he's good, and I know he's in control, and I'm going to do exactly what he says, including treating the people in my life the way God says I'm supposed to treat them. So when you do that, well, we know how that turns out because we read about Job. We've read all kinds of things. We read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we know how that all turns out. So my encouragement Man, we can trust Jesus. We need to be patient with whatever's going on, knowing that we have a God who loves us and is good and cares about us. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your love, your encouragement for this this challenge through your word. Lord, help us to be patient with those external struggles, the injustice that we see in the world. Lord, help us to be patient with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to look for encouragement to your word and to remind ourselves how things will turn back. And Lord, we know that you're coming back, that you are going to return. Help us to look forward to that, to live in light of that. And Lord, that that would show itself even in little things, like whether we follow through on what we're going to say, whether we are honest, whether we tell the truth. Lord, help us with that. In your name, amen.